All right, let's open our Bibles to uh, 1 Kings chapter 16. You know, as we go through the book of uh, 1 Kings, I'm reminded uh, again, as I was reading over this this week, you know, just the, the horrible condition of mankind. <laughs> Apart from Christ, we really are in a lot of trouble. And, and I've proven that with my own life, you know, having lived the first 24 years of my life outside of Christ and, and experiencing all that the world told me was good and living a motto, you know, if it feels good, do it kind of thing, and that's the mantra of today. But it doesn't get us very far, and we find ourselves hungry and thirsty. We find ourselves in that place of, uh, after we've run our wheels to the ground long enough, you, you, you come to figure out pretty quickly that, you know, there's, there's got to be more. There's got to be much more, and, and I'm missing something. Something's missing. And that's why, you know, it's so important for us as we read the Word of God to really allow it to challenge you. Hopefully we never get to a place where we put the Word of God on trial, like so many have. But let it put you on trial. May our lives, our hearts, our minds, the, way, the things that we think about, may we allow the Lord to have dominion over those things and to allow him to have reign over our hearts again. And many of us have known the Lord for some time, but I want to challenge you, don't stop. Don't ever stop where you're at because when you stop growing, when you stop learning, we, we get into a place where we just fall into a ditch, and then we're, it doesn't mean that you're going to lose your salvation, but we can lose our effectiveness. We can lose our joy. And, and as I look at this, uh, these chapters in 1 Kings, I just realize that the depravity of man. And, and, and tonight we're going to be looking predominantly at the kings of Israel. Remember, by this time, the, the united monarchy has uh, disintegrated, and now we have the divided kingdom. Uh, the northern ten tribes um, governed uh, originally by Jeroboam and the southern two tribes, Judah and Benjamin, also known as just Judah, is governed by Rehoboam. And through the process of time, we've already looked at some of this already, we just see one king after another and uh, just fall into darkness and fall into idolatry. And tonight we're going to be looking specifically at the northern ten tribes. The kings of Israel, not the kings of Judah, but the kings of Israel. And we know that the kings of, of Israel never recovered from their idolatry. Their beginnings were idolatrous, and Jeroboam was the cause of it. Building the two golden calves in those two centers of worship, one in Dan in the north and the other one in Bethel in the south. And they never recovered. They, they never recovered. And every single king from Jeroboam all the way until the very last king, before they would be taken into captivity by the Assyrians, every single one of them was evil and wicked and, and forsaking God who had given them, them the promised land. And isn't that just like us if we're not careful? You know, God has given us so many blessings and time goes on and it's so easy just to forget him. And we start thinking about the blessing rather than the blessing giver. And I, I want to encourage you to, to really 
stir up this idea of thanksgiving in your heart, this gratitude in your heart, especially in the times that we live in now as things just seem to be, you know, there's, there's glimpses of the, these wonderful times, you know, Roe v. Wade being overturned is such an incredible monumental thing in our country. For nearly 50 years, it had been that way. And it wasn't a right to begin with. It was all based on fallacy. But the precedent was there. But it's so easy for us to get to lose our sights. And I want to encourage you as we look at this chapter, which is not an easy chapter to look at, um, allow it to startle you, allow it to challenge you, and allow it to stir you up again. Because I, like you, I need to be stirred up again. I need to be stirred up. So let's read chapter 16. And let's just read down through verse 28. And then we'll get right into it, okay? But notice, it says, Then the word of the Lord came to Jehu, the son of Hanani, against Baasha, saying, Inasmuch as I lifted you out of the dust and made you ruler over my people Israel... And you have walked in the way of Jeroboam and have made my people Israel sin to provoke me to anger with their sins. Surely I will take away the posterity of Baasha and the posterity of his house. And I will make your house like the house of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. The dogs shall eat whoever belongs to Baasha and dies in the city. And the birds of the air shall eat whoever dies in the fields." Now the rest of the acts of Baasha, what he did and his might, are they not written in the chronicles of the kings of Israel? So Baasha rested with his fathers and was buried in Tirzah. And then Elah, his son, reigned in his place. And also the word of the Lord came by the prophet Yehu, the son of Hanani, against Baasha and his house because of all the evil that he did in the sight of the Lord in provoking him to anger with the work of his hands and being like the house of Jeroboam and because he killed them. In the 26th year of Asa, king of Judah, Elah, the son of Baasha, became king over Israel and he reigned two years in Tirzah. Now his servant Zimri, a a commander of half of his chariots, conspired against him as he was in Tirzah, drinking himself drunk in the house of Arza, steward of the house in Tirzah. And Zimri went in and struck him and killed him in the 27th year of Asa, king of Judah, and reigned in his place. And then it came to pass when he began to reign, as soon as he was seated on the throne, that he killed all the house of Baasha. He did not leave him one male, neither of his relatives nor of his friends. Thus Zimri destroyed all the household of Baasha, according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke against Baasha by Jehu the prophet. For all the sins of Baasha and the sins of Elah his son, by which they had sinned and by which they had made Israel sin in provoking the Lord God of Israel to anger with their idols. Now the rest of the acts of Elah and all that he did, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Israel? In the 27th year of Asa king of Judah, Zimri had reigned in Tirzah seven days. 
And the people were encamped against Gibbethon, which belonged to the Philistines. Now the people who were encamping heard it, saying and said, Zimri has conspired and also has killed the king. And so Israel made Omri, the commander of the army, king over Israel that day in the camp. And then Omri and all the Israel with him went up from Gibbethon, and they besieged Tirzah. And it happened when Zimri saw that the city was taken, that he went into the citadel of the king's house and burned the king's house down upon himself with fire and died because of the sins which he had committed in doing evil in the sight of the Lord and walking in the way of Jeroboam and in his sin which he had committed to make Israel sin. Now the rest of the acts of Zimri and the treason he committed, are they not written in the books of the chronicles of the kings of Israel? And then the people of Israel went uh, were divided into two parts, half of the people toward Tibni, the son of Ginnath, to make him king, and half followed Omri. But the people who followed Omri prevailed over the people who followed Tibni, the son of Ginnath. So Tibni died, and Omri reigned. In the 31st year of Asa, king of Judah, Omri became king over Israel and reigned 12 years. Six years he reigned in Tirzah, and he brought the hill, he bought, excuse me, the hill of Samaria from Shemer of, for two talents of silver, and then he built on the hill and called the name of the city which he built Samaria after the name of Shemer, owner of the hill. Omri did evil in the eyes of the Lord and did worse than all who were before him. For he walked in all the ways of Jeroboam, the sin of Nebat, and in his sin, which he had made Israel sin, provoking the Lord God of Israel to anger with their idols. And now the rest of the acts of Omri, which he did, and the might that he showed, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Israel? So Omri rested with his fathers and was buried in Samaria. And then Ahab, his son, reigned in his place. A very interesting time in, in Israel's history, and it just seems to get worse and worse and worse, unfortunately, for the, the northern ten tribes. But as we go forward and, and, and toward the latter part of our time together tonight, we will get into uh, verses 29 through 34. And um, in fact, the rest of the, the book of First Kings really revolves around just a couple of characters uh, Ahab, the, this king who was one of the worst kings Israel has ever seen, one of the worst, the worst of the worst. There's a lot of ink on the page about him. And along with him are two gentlemen, two prophets that we know very well, Elijah and Elisha. And during Ahab's reign, these two prophets um, were very instrumental in um, pointing out Israel's uh, faults and also uh, desiring to bring them to repentance. And, and so really from here until the very last few verses of this book is going to be based after tonight upon Ahab and Elijah and the ministry of Elijah as well. And so... Again, we see, just as we have already read, you know, the horrible way in which sinful man tries to govern himself. 
When left to himself, man always uh, tries to govern himself the best he can, but because he doesn't have a, a proper foundation, and if, he, if he's not born again, if he's not led by the Spirit of God, man will always fall into the ditch. Man will always rest on his pride and his achievements and, and his skills and abilities. It's just very natural to do that. The natural man seeks the things of the natural. And yet you and I are called to seek those things that are above and not the things on the earth. My anchor, my, my foundation, my compass is no longer the, the Pied Piper that's been piping to me all my life. It's, he's, he's no longer the one I follow. I follow Jesus now. Don't you follow Jesus? You wouldn't be here if you didn't. But we do. We follow him. And it's going to be foreign in a world that we live in to follow Jesus. And no one is going to pat us on the back No one is going to encourage us in this walk with the Lord Jesus Christ. No one will. But this is why we need to do that. But man is utterly incapable of governing himself apart from God. It always goes downhill. All he's capable of doing is creating discord, creating trouble, bringing the judgment of God upon him. And this is why there will be no true peace until the Prince of Peace, Jesus Christ, comes back for us, his bride, the church, at the rapture of the church, which we hope would be any moment now. Wouldn't that be great before we end the service? It'd be great, actually, right now. I don't need to finish. I'd be very much. I'd be very happy to be interrupted by the Lord at any time, even even in my most holy moment, whenever that may be. Lord, interrupt, interrupt on a Sunday morning and take us before I even open my mouth and, and impugn myself. <laughs> open heaven and bring us, take us, Lord, to yourself. But until then, there's only going to be, you know, uh, until the Prince of Peace comes back to rule on this earth for a thousand years. Until then, we're going to see corruption. We're going to see sinful man and humanism trying to make its way, trying to express itself. Corruption and murder. Sounds like a lot like today. In fact, as I read this chapter, and as we have already read it, it reminds me a lot of the United States. We are in a really bad place. And it's really important that we, as the church, that we repent of things that we know of, that we won't get to a place. I believe the Lord, the Bible says very clearly that judgment starts first in the house of God, meaning he wants to deal with us. He wants to change us so that we can be prepared and ready for him, to be used by him in whatever way he chooses. And, and I know that that's his desire, and yet I find myself like that dog who is being taken for a walk that doesn't want to be taken for a walk, and he, he puts out his legs, and the owner is trying to drag him, and he's just like resisting it, and the, and the, and the collar is nearly over his ears because the owner is trying to pull the dog forward. I don't want to be like that. And folks, now is the time. The church, we need to arise. We need to arise out of the dust. We need to shake off our grave clothes. We need to shake off our deadness. We need revival in the church. I need revival. You need revival because you can't re. The the term revival means that something was alive, but the flame is going out or has gone out and needs to be revived. 
It's not evangelism. We evangelize the lost and the dead, but the church is the only entity that needs to be and can be revived, if it wills. That we don't sound, that we don't become like Israel. Because our country has become like Israel, following its idols. It has been for a long time. In Galatians chapter 6, it says, Do not be deceived, God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. For he who sows to the flesh will of the flesh reap corruption, but he who sows to the Spirit will of the Spirit reap everlasting life. And yes, as we read these chapters, and as we read already, we see them sowing to the wind and reaping the whirlwind because they have thrown off and cast off that cord that God has sent. When you think of Psalm 2, you know, they've taken this wonderful umbilical cord that's supposed to be attached to God, and they've taken that cord and they said, no, thank you. And they've cast it off from them. And therefore, the child, us, we no longer receive the nutrients from our Heavenly Father. We no longer receive the blessings from God. We're no longer under the spout where the blessings come out. We've decided to cast away his cords from us. Any hope of help, we've cast away. And we wonder why we are at, why we are at where we are at today. So we need to learn to walk in God's ways. And may as we read these things, may it really change us because there is nothing new under the sun. I believe that. It's just repackaged in a different form. And Satan never uses a new thing. He always uses the old thing. And the reason he uses the old thing is because it always works. And especially to the natural man who is unregenerate, to the natural man who does not have the Spirit of God in him, he will fall into the ditch and he'll fall to the ploys and the, and the schemes of Satan every single time. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. We looked at that as we looked at Matthew 4 on Sundays. The same things that were the Satan deceived Adam and Eve in the garden were the very, in the first Adam, were the very same things that Satan used on the last Adam, Jesus Christ. The same things, except it didn't work on Jesus. It didn't work on him. But we need to learn, learn to walk in God's ways and not the ways of man and the humanistic endeavors of the world. And um, So may the Lord give us an awakening in our country and a revival within the church to the end that we and many might be saved. That many might be saved and turn to Christ before the end. And I believe we are very close to the end. Every church, is, the church has been saying that for hundreds of years, but I believe we are at the end of the end. And the reason I believe that is because of the signs. Because of the things that are around us, the things that we've been reading in Revelation, and how closely aligned, and all these things are getting closer and closer, so close we can almost see them coming to fruition, and yet God in His grace is giving us time. And folks, like Israel and what we've read tonight already, the United States is in that place. We've gone our own way. We've thrown off God. They don't teach Christ in the schools. They teach evolution. They teach critical race theory. 
They teach gender. You can be whatever you want. They'll even give you a bathroom of confusion. So let's look at verse 1 again. It says, Then the word of the Lord came to Jehu, the son of Hanani, against Baasha, saying, Inasmuch as I lifted you out of the dust. Now, this phrase, I've lifted you out of the dust, this literally is God's way of saying, I lifted you out of obscurity, out of this lowly place. Because this guy, this man, Baasha, wasn't, uh, he was not a son of Jeroboam. In fact, the line of kings. Uh, had, had been broken already because Jeroboam had a son, Nadab, and it, it's this Baasha that, um, that not only killed Baasha or, or killed Nadab, but then killed the rest of his family, killed the rest of the family of, uh, of Jeroboam. But now a man who is not even a, a son of Jeroboam, now he's, he's just a man of Issachar. He's just a man of Israel. He's not even part of the, the line of Jeroboam, just a man of Israel from the line of Issachar. Now he's king over Israel after doing this dastardly deed of murdering this man and then killing his whole family. And again, he was fulfilling the word of the Lord, which is kind of interesting, and we'll get into that. But notice what it says in verse 2, that God says, I've lifted you out of the dust and I've made you ruler over my people. Are you, and, you, and you have walked in the way of Jeroboam and have made my people sin to provoke me to anger. Isn't that interesting? God could say, I've made you ruler over my people. And when he says this, uh, that he made Baasha ruler over his people, it, it means that God allowed it. It doesn't mean that he forced it, that he made it to happen. He allowed it to happen based on Baasha's evil and treacherous actions of his own heart. See, there's God's perfect will and then there's God's permissive will. When he allows something to happen, even though it's not his will to happen, he will allow things to happen. And that's why, that's why people struggle so much. Why did God allow that infant to be run over by a car? Why did he allow that, that person who had never been married and you know, on their wedding day, you know, she got in a car and had to go do something and, and she was killed in it? Why, God? And we don't understand because we don't have the mind of God. Had we had the mind of God, we would say, Lord, you're sovereign and you're right in what you did. We don't understand it. But there's things that we just don't understand. And those holy, wonderful, mysterious things belong to God alone. And it's okay to question it. (laughs) But don't let it shipwreck your faith. Why did he allow Baasha to kill Nadab and his family? And notice that God calls the ruler of his people to account first. He calls Baasha. He led the people in sin, just like Jeroboam did, but he held the man who was in charge accountable first and foremost because he continued to perpetuate that sinful, idolatrous lifestyle that idolatrous worship. He continued it, and God was going to hold him accountable to it. And instead of, you know, he could have enjoyed God's blessings, but instead he chose evil, and the result is always God's judgment. 
So in verse 3, he said, Surely I will take away the posterity of Baasha and the posterity of his house, and I will make your house like the house of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. And we see in this verse uh, a prophecy, uh, again, of this horrible precedent of a king murdering previous king's sons. And unfortunately, that gets perpetuated as we go along. And we've already seen a couple iterations of it in what we read already. But we also see, uh, we saw it first when Nadab... uh, uh, Jeroboam's son was murdered by this Baasha, and then Baasha murdered all the house of Jeroboam, which was a fulfillment. Get this, this is really interesting. It was a fulfillment of, of prophecy that was given by Ahijah the prophet to Jeroboam's wife. And we read that when we were in 1 Kings chapter 14 and verse 10 and 11. And let me just read it to you. Verse 10 and 11 of chapter 14, it says this. It says, therefore, and this is Ahijah the prophet speaking to Jeroboam's wife who was disguised, coming to him. He says, therefore, and God is speaking through the prophet, therefore, behold, I will bring disaster on the house of Jeroboam and will cut off from Jeroboam, notice, every male in Israel, bond and free. I will take away the remnant of the house of Jeroboam as one takes away refuse until it is all gone. And the dog shall eat whoever belongs to Jeroboam and dies in the city and the birds of the air shall eat whoever dies in the field and the Lord has for the Lord has spoken and then arise because when you get to your house Mrs. Jeroboam your son is is going to die and so God brings him brings judgment upon him there came a time in Jeroboam's life where God said okay you've crossed the Rubicon and I'm so glad that only God knows that Rubicon But I've known people that have flirted with sin long enough, even as a Christian, they flirted with sin, maybe had an addiction or something, and they never kicked it, they never took it seriously, and and, and they go on for years, and all of a sudden, you're, you're just wondering, and you hear about this, and you're like, God, how is this possible? Is this person really saved? And the person may be saved, they may just be really stuck in a in a habitual, horrible sin. And sometimes God just takes them home. They cross that line, and nobody likes that, but I've seen it. And I don't know where that line is for each of us. I hope none of us ever flirt with that line, that Rubicon. It's an invisible line that each one of us has, and God has a way of, and I don't know where that is, because sometimes he allows somebody to get caught and corrected quickly, and then there are other times where years go by and it just festers and festers. And then one day the spring is trapped, the trap is sprung, and and it's a horrible thing. But notice verse 4, the dogs will eat whoever belongs to Baasha and dies in the city and the birds, etc. But notice a very undignified way to die, uh, and, and they weren't supposed to die like that. They were supposed to sleep with their fathers. Their, after their body had been consumed, they would take the bones and put them in an ossuary, a bone box of all your family relatives, and you'd all be in this ossuary together. That's the way they used to bury people, but not out in the open field left for the, the birds and, the, and the, the animals to eat. But that's the result and the consequence of sin, God says. 
And like Yehu, here in chapter 16, we'll see God sending prophets to the kings of the northern ten tribes. And whenever a prophet comes to you, you had better listen. And we're going to see this as we go through the, the Old Testament, because God has either words of warning, or they may be words of judgment. Sometimes they're instructional. Sometimes they are meant to bring comfort. But most, more often than not, it's to bring correction, or judgment, or um, warning with the intent to get you to turn from your ways. That's how much God loves us. He will send somebody to tell us and to warn us. But we have this horrible thing that we can do and this horrible free will that we have. It's scary to me. Sometimes I wished I was a robot. Sometimes I wished I was programmed to just love God. But how great would that love be if I had no other way than to just love him, and I, I didn't have any, I couldn't rebel against him. There's something about love when it's given a choice. And when that heart chooses to love, even though the choice is there, they always choose love and they always prefer the other over themselves. That is an amazing, amazing thing, and it's what brings and keeps marriages together. Pray for that love, pray for that agape love to just fill all of us. For our spouses, for our friends, for our neighbors, co-workers, everything. But when a prophet comes, he's coming, and there's a reason for it. And we see it in 1 Kings chapter 11, verse 29 through 30, 39. God uses the prophet Ahijah to speak to Jeroboam, to warn him and, and to tell him of what's coming. Or, or I'm sorry, in, in, that, in that verse, uh, God was telling uh, Jeroboam that he was going to be the next king of the northern ten tribes. But he had better walk a, a fine line, and God encouraged him to walk in a right way, and God would bless him. So a prophet speaks to him. We see it in, um, in, in 1 Kings chapter 12, God's, God's sending Shemaiah to speak to Rehoboam about not going to war with his brethren in the north. A, a prophet intervenes. In, in 1 Kings chapter 13, a man of God who prophesied against the altar that Jeroboam was sacrificing on and doing these idolatrous things in, in Dan and Bethel, whose prophecy ultimately would not come to pass until another 290 years when Isaiah, or Josiah would be born. And we see prophets coming, a prophet coming, and in 1 Kings 14, Ahijah the prophet prophesying against Jeroboam and against his house and against his son. That was the prophecy of Ahijah speaking to Jeroboam's wife. And now here in chapter 16, Yehu, notice another prophet, is sent by God, and he's sent to Baasha specifically to pronounce judgment upon him for his idolatry and leading the people into Israel. So God is serious. If we're not listening, he'll send somebody else to come talk to us. So it behooves us then, doesn't it, to really listen. To listen to the scripture. To not be thinking about it just for somebody else, but thinking about it primarily for me. Because as I open the Bible, God wants to speak to me. He doesn't want to necessarily speak to me about somebody else's problem. He wants me to deal with my problem. That's what he wants. First and foremost, that's what he wants. But notice in verse 5, Now the rest of the acts of Baasha, what he did and his might, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Israel? And again, this collection of books is, is not extant. I mean, it's, it's not available. It's been lost. We don't know where it is. 
So Baasha rested, verse 6, with his fathers and was buried in Tirzah. And then Elah, his son, reigned in his place. And again, rested with his fathers just means that he died and was buried with his, with his ancestors. And also the word of the Lord came by the prophet Yehu, the son of Hanani, against Baasha and his house, because of all the evil that he did in the sight of the Lord, and provoking him to anger with the work of his hands, and being like the house of Jeroboam. Notice how God, as he relates to these kings, remember in, the, in Judah, just a few chapters ago, when it spoke of the, the kings of Judah, God was always comparing them to David. Well, now, in the northern ten tribes, you're going to see God comparing their evil with the evil of Jeroboam. And it's usually something like this. And he did evil just like his father, Jeroboam, did. And even did worse than this, to provoke God to anger. And yes, we can provoke the Lord to anger by our actions as individuals, as countries, Notice in verse 8, so now in the 26th year of Asa, king of Judah, Elah, the son of Baasha, became king over Israel and reigned two years in Tirzah. Now, as, again, as we go through kings, you've got to understand that there's, these, there's, there's an overlapping of, of, of time. Uh, you know, because it's talking about one king, and that king may, his reign may have lasted 20 years. And in that 20 years, there may have been a couple kings in, in, in one of the other uh, tribes, or, in, you know, north or south. And so the Bible gives us, in context uh, of that king, you know, these other kings. But then it, then it also makes sure that it gives the account of that king in, a ne- in the next chapter. So it seems like you're kind of going forward and then rewinding and going back and looking. But just understand that that's really what the, the Word of God is trying to accomplish there. So now uh, the servant, the servant of, of Elah, the son of Baasha, Zimri, commander, notice, of half of his chariots, he conspired against him as he was in Tirzah, drinking himself drunk in the house of Arza, steward of the house in Tirzah. So we're going to see two men. We're going to see this man named Zimri, and later on we're going to see Omri battling for the throne. And Zimri was commander over the half of Elah's chariots, but Omri, we're going to find out later, as we've already read, he was the commander of the entire army. So he's the, he's the commander of the army, and so this uh, Zimri was really a subordinate, um, we believe, to Omri. And yet it was Omri, or I'm sorry, yet it was uh, uh, Zimri, excuse me, these names sound so familiar, you get them... If you're dyslexic, you can have a problem. I don't really think I'm dyslexic, but uh, so there's going to be some issues. But notice in verse nine. So his servant um, conspired. He was he was in Tirzah, drinking himself drunk in the house of Arza. And I was thinking about this today: how power and alcohol they never mix well, do they? They never mix well. And we'll see the same thing over and over and over again. And we see it even today. And in Proverbs, it tells us in chapter 20, verse 1, that wine is a mocker, strong drink is a brawler, and whoever is led astray by it is not wise. And here's a man who's got a lot of power, and he's drinking. And he only had a two-year reign because of his foolishness. And, and later on in history, we're going to see this um, 
from this point in 1 Kings, we're going to see uh, later on in history, Nebuchadnezzar's grandson. Remember Belshazzar, who was in the, in the hall there um, after Nebuchadnezzar had died and after his son was on the throne? Finally, Belshazzar is the king in, in Babylon, and he's having a drunken orgy with all of his cabinet, and they bring out from the temple that had been raided in Jerusalem, they bring out all the articles, and they're drinking and, and, and having a great old time, and then a hand without an arm attached to it, starts to write on the wall. And it says, Many, many tekel you farsen. And the interpretation is, God has numbered your kingdom and finished it. You have been wanted. You've been weighed in the balances and found wanting. And your kingdom has been divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. And that very night, Belshazzar in his drunkenness was killed by the Medes and the Persians. And Babylon was overtaken in 539 B.C by the Beans and the Persians. And yet we are to be in Christ's likeness. There's so much prohibition of, of, of things, of alcohol in the Bible. It's worth us as Christians taking a hard look at it because what does the Bible tell us? It says, do not be drunk with wine, wherein is excess. Meaning, don't drink to get drunk and to have the buzz and to go forward and, and do a little bit more. If you're a, you know, if you drink a, a glass of wine and you don't get drunk, that's between you and the Lord. But uh, some people can't do that. They, they want to get the buzz happening, or they might go a little bit further. But you are on shaky. You're very. You're in a bad place. Do not be drunk with wine wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit. Notice, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord, giving thanks, I love that, thanksgiving for all things to God the Father in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another in the fear of God. And that's a really great recipe for the church of God. I would encourage you that if you're a social drinker, even as a Christian, would you pray about just stopping, not out of legalism, just out of staying away from the goal or stay away, staying away from that line? Just stay away from the line. Don't flirt with the line. You know, when we were kids, we always did that. Your mother says, don't you cross that line. You, you don't cross that line. And what do we do as little kids? We look right at her and we go... <laughs> put a little toe over there. And we do it. We push the envelope all the time. Don't push the envelope ever. If you continue doing it, you're going to get busted. It's just not worth it. So Zimri, notice, goes into um, the king now. He goes in and he kills him. Struck him and killed him in the 20th year of Asa, king of Judah, and reigned in his place. And then it came to pass, when he began to reign, as soon as he was seated on his throne, that he killed all the household of Baasha. And he did not leave him one male, neither of his relatives nor of his friends. So he really went after everything and everyone, and he made sure there was going to be no reprisals after this happened. It's sort of like an Italian family, and I can say this because I, I have some really great Italian friends. You hurt a member of the family, you're going to have issues. One day. He kills them all. 
Thus Zimri destroyed all the household of Baasha. According to the word of the Lord, which he had noticed, according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke against Baasha by Yehu the prophet, for all the sins of Baasha, because remember, Baasha did the same thing, right, to Nadab, and now um, this king is doing the same thing to Baasha's family, the exact same thing. Killing everybody, killing the king, and then going after his family and wiping out all the males. It happens in succession. Do you see this? For all the sins of Baasha and the sins of Elah, his son, by which he had sinned and by which they had made Israel to sin, and provoking the Lord God to anger with their idols. And I want to show you a very interesting thing here in uh, chapters 14 through 16 thus far. Because in 1 Kings 14, verses 10 and 11, God prophesied against King Jeroboam that his son and every male of his house would be destroyed and that God would remove the remnant of the house of Israel. And this would be accomplished, we just read it, when Jeroboam's son, Nadab, was killed by Baasha, the son of Ahijah. Baasha then killed all of the house of Jeroboam according to the word of the Lord which was spoken by Ahijah the prophet. Yes, according to the Lord. God was going to use one evil man to bring judgment upon another evil man. He was going to do it. And then God pronounces judgment against Baasha in 1 Kings chapter 16 that we just read, the first four verses, that he would do the same thing to his house that Baasha did to the house of Jeroboam, again, according to the word by Yehu. And now in verse 10 through 12, here in chapter 16, Zimri does the same thing to Baasha that Baasha did to Jeroboam. And again, according to the word of the Lord spoken by Yehu the prophet. So this seems strange, doesn't it? That God would use Baasha and Zimri to accomplish what God had prophesied and then punish them for it. Does that seem fair to you? No. (laughs) You're thinking rightly if you say no, because it's not fair. Were they culpable, these men who had killed these families and all these men? Were they culpable? Culpable. Now, whether they understood the prophecy or not, God didn't say to Baasha, I want you to kill all of Nadab's family, and I want you to do it now, and you have no choice in the matter. It wasn't like that at all. Who knows whether they really heard this prophecy or whether they knew it was, but they followed through on their own evil heart, and there's the thing. They were culpable. God did not force. He didn't encourage them to kill entire families in each of these two men's lives, Um, but God, of course, had the foreknowledge knowledge that they would do this and thus they were culpable and they acted on their own evil desires that's the unfair advantage that god has he's omni he's omniscient he knows all things he can say something very general and years and years can go by and then out of the attitude of a man's heart he goes through out of his own passion and lust and ignorance and arrogance and he steps out and he does that thing And it fulfills the very prophecy that God had spoken to earlier, sometimes hundreds of years earlier. The Bible's filled with this stuff. And God holds them culpable, just as he held Judas culpable. It had been prophesied in the Psalms that Judas would betray the Son of God. And do you think for a minute that Judas was thinking, I think I'm going to fulfill prophecy so so I can be famous so that I can get 30 pieces of silver. He wasn't thinking that at all. 
I don't think he was thinking about the scriptures at all. He was thinking about one thing, himself. He had nobody else in mind. He was only thinking of himself. I love what it says in James chapter 1, verse 13. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God, because that's what it sounds like. God made a proclamation that this is, he's going to pronounce judgment on, uh, on a man because of what he did, and then he's going to use another ungodly man to fulfill that, and then he's going to punish the man for doing it. It almost seems wrong, but God... Those men were culpable because it tells us that no one can say that I'm tempted and and, and that I'm tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone to sin. God does not do that. The devil does that. God may try you. He may test you. But he doesn't tempt you to sin. There's a big difference. One's to get you to fall off and and to fall into the ditch, and the other one is instruction to make you stronger. Two different things to think about. One is to tempt you to sin, and that's what he when Jesus was tempted by the devil in the in the in the desert for those 40 days. That's exactly what Satan was trying to do. But when God tempts you and I, it's when, when he tests us. It's, it's to show the, 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 the assurity, the, the quality of where we're at. See, God already knows this, but I don't know that. I don't know what I'm going to do in a situation until I'm tested. But when I'm tested, all of a sudden I realize I'm really not all I think I was. I thought that I would do this. I boasted a lot about if I was in that position, I would have done this. If, I, if that ever happened to me, man, I would have, you know, and we get all these other things happening like that. And God's saying, do you really know your heart, Mr. Kellogg? And the answer is, no, sir, I don't. I don't know my own heart. But God does not tempt. Satan tempts. Has God done this sort of thing before? Yes, he has. God's used his own people. When they came out of Egypt, he used his own people to judge those seven nations of the Canaanites. Remember? He wouldn't lead them in there because the iniquity of the Amorites was not yet full. But when the iniquity of the Amorites was full, what did God do? He used his own people, brought them out of Israel, stirred them up in the desert for 40 years, brought them into the promised land, and told them to go in and wipe out all of these evildoers. And we know that they didn't do the job completely. But God would use his own rebellious people to bring judgment upon other people. And later God would judge his own people for their idolatry by ungodly nations like Assyria and Babylon specifically. And God would then judge Assyria and Babylon for what they did to Israel. Does it sound familiar to what we're seeing tonight? It's like the hammer coming down on the hammer. And then bringing judgment upon the hammer. That's exactly what it is. God even called Nebuchadnezzar his servant. In Jeremiah chapter 25, verse 9, it says, Behold, I will send and take all the families of the north, says the Lord. This is a prophecy of Jeremiah uh, of when Nebuchadnezzar, and Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant, God says, and will bring them against this land, against its inhabitants, and against all these nations all around, and will utterly destroy them and make them an astonishment, a hissing, and perpetual desolations. Yes, this idolatrous, evil man, Nebuchadnezzar, who I believe is in heaven, by the way, 
You can read Daniel 4 and figure that out for yourself. But he used this man as a hammer against his own people. And then God judged Nebuchadnezzar and his, and his kingdom. He did the same thing with, well, well similar idea with, with Cyrus. God called this pagan Gentile king Cyrus his shepherd. Isaiah 44 verse 28. Who says to Cyrus, he is my shepherd. And he will perform all my pleasure, saying to Jerusalem, you shall be built, and to the temple your foundation be laid. The bottom line here is that God is not partial to anyone or anything. He's going to use something to judge something else. And then he's going to hold that thing accountable for its treachery in doing it. Because they did it of their own volition, of their own evil heart. Because God does not tempt any man. Does that make sense? We, we know that to be true all over the Bible. And I just gave you some really great examples. God can and does use ungodly people or nations to judge other people or nations and then holds them accountable for that sin. It's an amazing mystery to me. But back in verse 14 now, it says, Now the rest of the acts of Elah and all that he did, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Israel? Is that, are those books available to us today? They're not. Whenever you see the books of the Chronicles of the King of Judah, are they available to us? Yes, they are. First and second Chronicles are the Chronicles of the Kings of Judah. But the Kings of Israel? No, we don't have them. So look in verse 15 now. It says, Now in the 27th year of King Asa, king of Judah, Zimri had uh, reigned in Tirzah, notice, seven days. He had one great week. And the people were encamped against Gibbethon, which belonged to the Philistines. Now Zimri reigned uh, seven days, which is the shortest time of any king in Israel. And this place of Gibbethon is, is near the shore of the Mediterranean, uh, just north a little bit of, of Ekron, one of the five capital cities of the Philistines. And this is the second time it's mentioned that, they, that the, the children of Israel in the north, they went against them. We saw it in 1 Kings 15, verse 27. They, they Under um, the reign of Nadab, Jeroboam's son, who reigned for only two years, they went against Gibbethon, uh, against the Philistines at this specific location. And now they're back at it again. But now the people who were encamped, verse 16, heard it, saying, Zimri has conspired also and has killed the king. So now it, it, they come to find out that Zimri has killed the king. And is also um, and so all Israel then at that time they made Omri who was the commander of the army a very natural fit I guess he was the commander of the army the president has been shot so they're now they're going to make the uh, you know the commander of the army uh, king over Israel and so they did that they made him king and. Um, and then Omri verse seventeen and all Israel went with him now notice they leave. Gibbethon, where they were fighting the, the Philistines, and now they besiege Tirzah, which is the hometown of Jeroboam, and it's also the capital, if you will, at this time. And, and now they're going there to kill the king. So they're leaving the real enemies of God now to go and fight an enemy within. And what a sad thing that is when we lose track of we, we got enemies within and without. And, and, and we see the northern kingdom, do you see it just falling apart? You know, at first it split, and now the ten tribes are up there, and they're just, they're just a mess. 
They're just a mess. And it happened, verse 18, when Zimri saw that the king, that the city was taken, that he went into the citadel, or the highest part of the king's palace, and he burned the king's house down upon himself with fire, and he died. And notice what the scripture says. Because of the sins which he had committed in doing evil in the sight of the Lord, in walking in the way of Jeroboam. Notice again the comparison to Jeroboam. Everyone's going to compare to Jeroboam now. Just like the southern two tribes are going to be compared to who? David, yeah. So Zimri committed suicide and his death was justice for the evil which he had done. Verse 20, now the rest of the acts of Zimri and the treason, notice that he committed. He killed the king while he was drunk. Are they not written in the books of the Chronicles of the Kings of Israel? Is that book available to us? It's not. So verse 21, then the people of Israel were divided now. So now a divided kingdom, now the, the, the northern ten tribes are going to be divided again. It, it almost like it's, falling, it's like falling apart. It's, so the rest of, uh, excuse me, verse 21, then the people of Israel were divided into two parts. Half of the people followed Tibni, the son of Ginath, to make him king, and the other followed Omri. And Tibni reigned for about five, roughly five years until Omri and his people prevailed against him, assumingly killing him and his followers and taking control. Omri was a, a, uh, he was a very able leader. He wasn't a godly man by any means, but he was probably the strongest leader up to that point in the, in the, in the northern t- ten tribes. In fact, it's, it's, it's been found on a number of archaeological fragments and things of that nature. They, they, at, at this time, they called Israel the land of Omri. That, that's how important this guy was because he was a, a strong man. He, he had a, a good mind mentally. Um, he wasn't a godly man by any means. But in the 30... Uh, in the 31st year of Asa, king of Judah, Omri became king over Israel, and he reigned 12 years. In six years, he reigned in Tirzah, and he bought the hill of Samaria from Shemer for two talents of silver, and then he built on the hill, called the name of the city which he built Samaria after the name of Shemer, owner of the hill. So half of his reign, he reigned from Tirzah, the, the capital and hometown of Jeroboam, and the other half of his reign, he reigned from this new capital now that Omri is going to establish called Samaria. And Samaria literally means a watchtower. And the reason they call it a watchtower is because it was 300 feet high, and all around it you had to go up to it. So it reminds you a lot of Jerusalem, of the city of David, Zion. It was a very similar kind of thing. Because Jerusalem, wherever you go, you're going up. And so to attack Jerusalem, you've got to come up on all, this, all the different sides. And so the northern ten tribes say, you know what? We need a place like that too, that's just as impregnable as Jerusalem. We need a, a strategic location. And what better place than 300 feet on a hill where you can see your enemy come up and just throw rocks at him and, until he's tired and then he goes away. And that's exactly what they did. They're counterfeiting everything that was happening that God had ordained in, in Judah. Now they're counterfeiting all kinds of stuff. You know, first they had you know, the, the, the two centers of worship, and now they're building this capital on a hill that makes it look like Jerusalem. They're trying so hard to kind of bring cohesion to the people who had left and are no longer going to Jerusalem, trying to give them a substitute. And that's exactly what the devil does to us, doesn't he? He's always given us substitutes. 
So Omri, verse 25, did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And he did worse than all who were before him. For he walked in all the ways of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, and in in his sin by which he had made Israel sin, provoking, notice, the Lord God of Israel to anger with their idols. And and he was, he was an able able leader, and he conquered the Moabites at this time. His name is actually written on the famous Moabite stone. If you look up the Moabite stone, it's in, uh, in, uh, in, in, uh, in, in different languages. And in that stone is mentioned Omri uh, of what he did. And you'd think that uh, to continue idolatry, treachery, and murder and intrigue would be a cause to consider your ways, but it, it doesn't for these guys. They just continued doing it. In fact, it was a Spanish philosopher and novelist and a poet, a man by the name of George Santayana. He said, those who cannot remember the past are condemned to repeat it. And so that's exactly what he's doing. He's repeating, just continuing like a hamster in a wheel that just keeps spinning and trying to get somewhere but getting nowhere. And that's what sin does to us. The devil is always holding the carrot. And that carrot can be a job, it can be a person, it can be a whatever it may be. But he's holding the carrot and we think we're going somewhere and we're going nowhere. We're going nowhere. So finally we get to verse 29. I'm sorry, verse 28, let me read that. Um, Maybe back up to verse 27, actually. Now the rest of the acts of Omri, which he did, and the might which he showed, are they not written in the books of the Chronicles of the Kings of Israel? Is that book available to us anywhere? No. You know what? When you read this again, you'll know. You'll remember. <laughs> Repetition does it for me. So Omri rested with his fathers and was buried in Samaria. And then Ahab, his son, reigned in his place. And notice verse 29. In the 38th year of Asa, so king of Judah. So while Asa is enjoying this very long reign in Judah, in, in, in Benjamin, in the southern two tribes, meanwhile, there's five or six kings up here that are just dropping off like that. And, and so in the 38th year of King Asa, king of Judah, Ahab, the son of Omri, became king over Israel. And Ahab, the son of Omri, reigned over Israel in Samaria 22 years. Isn't that interesting? You know, the phrase, only the good die young. <laughs> I guess in this case it was because this guy lived a long time and he's, that means he's not good. And he's, he lived a long time. He was in power for a long time. I never understood that, but God knows what he's doing. Our life is in his hands. Verse 30, Now Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord, more than all who were before him. That means that as we keep going along, do you see what's happening? There'll be a king, and he'll say, He did worse than all that were before him. And then another guy comes, And he did worse than all the other guys before him. And it's just like, you see this escalation of evil. And you know the hammer is going to get dropped. It always does. And it will. As we get closer, as we get to the end of 2 Chronicles, I think in 2 2 Kings, I think it's around chapter 17, uh, I think. And, you know, they're, they're all taken captive into Assyria because of their idolatry. Because this continued, and notice how patient God is. We're talking a couple hundred years of just constant debauchery and never learning and just continuing to go uphill in their sin. And yet God, he has every right to squash them like a bug from the very beginning, but he doesn't. He gives them time. He gives them space. He gives them enough rope to hang themselves with. 
And I've noticed that about God sometimes, and that's scary. I don't want a lot of rope. I'm glad that he's given me a lot of rope, otherwise I'd have been hung a long time ago. I'd be hanging from a tree. He's given me a lot of rope, and I hope I never do something so dumb that I, 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 I neglect him, and I do something so foolish. That's why we wake up in the morning, we say, God, keep me today. That's a good prayer. Lord, keep me today. Keep me in all of your ways, not in my ways. Keep me in your ways. Help me to follow you, Lord. Help me to stay away from the things that I know I should stay away from. Don't let me flirt with that line in the sand. Don't let me flirt with that ever again. Help me to stay clear away from everything. Flee all appearances of evil, the Bible says. So this Ahab, he did more evil than all who were before him. Verse 31, and it came to pass as though it had been a trivial thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, that he took as wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, whose name means Baal is alive. That sounds like a really great guy to hang out with on Christmas Day. Baal is alive. What about Jesus is alive? I got a shirt that says Jesus is alive. Not Baal. <laughs> So he married this woman, Jezebel, whose father's name is Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians, up way north of Israel in the area of Phoenicia, in Tyre and Sidon. That's who he was. And he went and notice what Ahab did. He went and he served Baal and worshipped him. He goes up there and gets this Gentile woman. From a, from a very ungodly man. And he certainly had many women in Israel that were pretty and beautiful and came from great lines, you know, great heritages, and, you know, and, and they were wonderful ladies. He had his pick, but he has to go outside and do the verboten thing and go up and, and marry a, a, a Gentile woman whose dad was a devil worshiper. And then he built an altar for Baal in the temple of Baal, which he had built in Samaria. And Ahab made a wooden image. These were, these were symbols, and some believe they might have been phallic symbols. They were, they, were, they were poles, and they were meant to stir up the passion to worship the female goddess Asherah. Or Asherah. She's gone by both of those names. So Ahab did more to provoke God than all the other kings. And this is why they would go into captivity. When the king of Assyria would finally come and take Israel captive, he repopulated the land with Gentiles. Yes, this area of Samaria. Now think about this, because this is going to come into our New Testament idea. So he, he, would, he would take Israel captive, and then he repopulated the land with Gentiles from many other Gentile cities, and they dwelt there, and then the Jews began to intermingle and marry with these people groups, and that is why the Samaritans, the people of Samaria, were looked down upon as being half-breeds and compromised and thus debased in Jesus' time. Remember, that's why Jesus, you know, most of the Jews, when they would go from Judah to Galilee, they had to go through Samaria. Area. And the only way to get around that is to go, through the Jordan, go across the Jordan and go through an area called Perea and, and, and get away from Samaria altogether and then cross back over in the Jordan and, and enter into Galilee. 
They didn't even want to walk through the land because of this. This is where it all happened. In fact, in 2 Kings, you might want to make a note of this. It's just one verse, 2 Kings chapter 17, verse 24. Notice, it tells us that this is exactly what happened. It says, then the king of Assyria, and again, we're going forward in history here when the northern ten tribes would be taken captive by the Assyrians in 722 B.C. It says in 2 Kings 17, 24, it says this, then the king of Assyria brought people from Babylon, from Kutha, Ava, Hamath, and from Sepharvaim, and placed them in the cities of Samaria instead of the children of Israel. And they took possession of Samaria and dwelt in its cities. And so now fast forward a few hundred years, several, a handful of hundred of years, and now you're in Jesus' day. And all of those cities where the king of Assyria had moved those people into that area all the, from, from Babylon and all these other places and all these Gentiles. Now the Jews are intermingling with them, marrying them, doing the thing that God told them not to do. And that's why the Jew would say, I'm not going to go through Samaria because I, I don't even want to be associated with these people. <laughs> he thought bigotry was new. Happened back then too. Racism. That's really what it was. Happened then. Nobody was getting canceled. They were just being judged for it. <laughs> and God was doing that. Yeah, the Bible is very honest about the sins of man. And the idea is that we learn from it. Because Just because it's in the Bible, I remember talking to uh, my piano teacher, many, many, many years ago, I had just gotten saved. I was so on fire for God. And I remember going to them. Uh, his, her husband taught me to play the guitar, and his, his wife taught me how to play the piano. And I would go down to their house every week, and I would take guitar and piano lessons. And I remember one time after I got saved, I came back to them, and I was telling them all this stuff. And it, they were just looking at me going, we want the, new, we want the old Rob back. And they said, I can't believe the Bible because it has horrible things in it. And I was so, such a young believer, so excited. I'm like, and I knew that God had saved me. I, I, the Spirit of God was blazing inside of my heart. And, and I'm like, how can you say that? But it was, you know what it was like? It was like trying to tell a blind person that, that you know, this is the color red. It's like telling a blind person, this is like a maroon color. It's like a reddish color. And they're like, I don't see it. I don't understand. And that's what I was trying to do. But notice verse 34. In his days, Hiel of Bethel built Jericho. And he laid its foundation with Abiram, his firstborn, and with his youngest son, Segub, he set up its gates according to the word of the Lord, which he had spoken through Joshua, the son of Nun. Now, this is something. This is a fulfillment of a prophecy. And, you, and right in the margin of your Bible, next to verse 34, Joshua chapter 6, verse 24 through 26. And we'll end here. Because way back in Joshua, before, you know, as they were just getting into the promised land, what did, and in fact, after they, the first city that they attacked was Jericho because they were evil people. 
And the only people who were saved out of that evil city was Rahab and her family because she helped the two spies, remember? But God says to wipe out everybody and, and destroy the city, and they did. They marched around it seven times, and the walls came tumbling down. Archaeological evidence supports all of that. And they burned it, and there's evidence of that. But what, what happened back in Joshua? Let me read it to you. After they come into the promised land, they marched around. The, the thing fell flat. They went in and they killed everybody. That's what God wanted them to do. I know that's hard to understand. And they burnt the place. And then it says, but they burned the city, verse 24, Joshua 6, verse 24. But they burned the city and all that was in it with fire, only the silver and gold and the vessels of bronze and iron they put into the treasury of the house of the Lord. And Joshua spared Rahab the harlot, who I'm sure was not a harlot anymore, and her father's household and all that she had. So she dwells in Israel to this day, a believer, because she hid the messengers of whom Joshua sent to spy out Jericho. And then Joshua charged them at that time, saying, Cursed be the man before the Lord who rises up and builds this city Jericho. He shall lay its foundation with its firstborn, and with his youngest he shall set up its gates. This seems to infer then that at this time this man named Hiel began Began to have it in his mind and forget the prophecy, he decided he was going to build it anyway. And in the process of doing so, he loses his firstborn and his, and, his, and his youngest. In the process of trying to do that, he starts, he attempts to do it, and God judges him, fulfilling that prophecy. Hundreds of years prior, Joshua said that by the Spirit of God, and now it comes to pass. And see, God is very serious about sin. We're not so serious about sin. Our culture is not very serious about sin. But you and I, Christian, let sin be the thing that we loathe. Let it be the thing that we hate. Let it be the thing that we don't want to get caught up in again. Do you remember the days when you were just caught in its web? You were like... You were like in a net, and somebody was dragging you to, from, from the ocean to the shore, and you're just all twi- twi- tangled and messed up, and you got seaweed all over you, you got fish guts all over you. And God washed you, and he cleansed you. He says, now go serve me, and enjoy your life, and follow me, and your life will be rich and full. Isn't that a glorious thing? I love that. And I pray that you do too. And may that love of God just bring us to that place where we're like, Lord, I want to I be with you. I want to abide in you. I don't want to go against you. I don't want to fall away from you ever. I don't want to turn away from you ever again, Lord. Help me, Lord, please. May that be our prayer. Let's stand and let's pray. Lord, we thank you. For the warnings, Lord, even though it's hard, Lord, as we read this, no doubt, we're not, we're not even done yet. <laughs> but Lord, it, it can be discouraging to see, Lord, man at his very best. And it, man at his best is man at his, he's a man, is, he's just a man. Man and woman, it doesn't matter. Lord, teach us from your word, teach us these things. Help us to walk with you. 
and help us to shun sin, to turn away from it, Lord, to hate it like you hate it. And Lord, teach us, help us to be different than what we read here tonight. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.